That's one of my uh, favorite songs right now. I love those words that come out of John 6 that Peter responded to Jesus' question, do you want to go as well? As the crowds left, and he said, where else shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. Let's hear those words from Romans chapter 12. I invite you to follow along with me as I begin reading in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service and our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Several years ago, I was uh, sitting around a table with a, a group of pastors from another church where one of the men expressed with uh, disgust and frustration, the Holy Spirit has been absent from our church for years. A little taken back by the statement, but I think I knew what he meant. He meant by that that their church hadn't witnessed healings and visions and people speaking in tongues. Been some time since he claimed that they had experienced such things. Some churches have elevated those gifts. This wasn't one of them, I don't think. Elevated some of the gifts, in particular maybe the experience of speaking in tongues as an essential mark of a Christian. And so if, if that isn't going on, well, you're not a Christian. That's, that's what some conclude. If you haven't yourself spoken in tongues, well, the Spirit is not in you. Others have taken a less extreme view, or rather have spoken of it as a second blessing. The second blessing of the Spirit, whereby one may undergo a Pentecost, Acts 2-like experience of renewal, or revival. It's a, it's a next-level experience of the Spirit in your life. So the question I want to ask us this morning is, should we assume that if we're not experiencing signs and wonders of these such, that the Holy Spirit is absent from our midst, or that you maybe missing out on some extra blessing from the Spirit? After all, isn't this what we see in the, in the early church, specifically in the book of Acts, where the Holy Spirit fell upon the believers and, and everyone began speaking in tongues? And that many signs and wonders were being done among the people. If this is what we see in the New Testament, why don't we experience those things here at Oak Park? Why don't we see signs and wonders as a normal experience in the Christian life? Or at least the Christian life that we've witnessed. 
Have we missed something? Have, have we missed something so fundamental to the church that we desperately need to recover? Has the Holy Spirit been absent from our midst? I do think many Christians need to recover a proper understanding of the Holy Spirit. Namely, who the Spirit is and how He works in our lives. But that recovery, I do not think, will look like a new Pentecost, such as what we see in Acts chapter 2. Rather, what I believe the Scriptures press upon us, that where the Spirit is working, where there is a greater awareness of the Spirit, there is a greater confession and devotion to Jesus Christ as Lord. I want you to hear Paul's statement to the church in Corinth. He says in, in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say, get this, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Can you say that Jesus is Lord? Well, then you're in the Spirit. The Apostle John says something very similar in 1 John 4, 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Do you believe Jesus Christ came in the flesh? When the Spirit of God is in you. So do you want to know whether the Holy Spirit is in the midst of a church? Ask if Jesus Christ is confessed as Lord. A church where the Holy Spirit is living and active is a church where Christ is preached from the pulpit sung in the songs and cherished in the hearts of the people. That's a spirit-filled, rich church. Why is this the case? Because one of the main roles of the Holy Spirit is to renew our hearts, to regenerate them, John 3, to be born again, whereby we are born by water and spirit. The Spirit's role is to guide us into all truth, John 14. And to enable us to submit to Christ's lordship, Romans 8. I want to remind us of what, how Paul puts it, because we've been in Romans. In Romans 5.5, 5, you don't have to turn there, you can just listen. Paul reminds us that God's love has been poured into our hearts. How? Through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Again, in Romans 8, for all who are led by the Spirit, this is verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Therefore, if you today are a genuine believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that is the work of the Holy Spirit in you. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. And if the Holy Spirit dwells inside of each one of us, then corporately, even now, as the word is being preached and we are sitting, listening, the Holy Spirit is among us. As we were singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to one another, making melody in our heart, the Spirit was working in us. That is the work of the Spirit. And so to put it negatively, 
If the Holy Spirit is not in our midst, the Holy Spirit is absent, then we are of all people most to be pitied. The absence of the Spirit means we're not in Christ. And if we're not in Christ, we're still dead in our sins. And so I come back to that conversation, and, and I knew what, what the brother meant. was, It's not true the Spirit isn't in your church if you're genuinely in Christ. Last Sunday, we began to look at another role of the, the Holy Spirit, namely in his gifting of, a, of believers for the common good of the church. We learned that every believer is gifted in at least one or, or more particular ways so that they're able to serve in the name of Christ to build up the body of Christ so that we can carry out the, the mission of Christ as the church. And so, since we are all gifted with different abilities, Paul exhorts us in our passage in verse 6 to let us use our gifts. And that's where we left last Sunday. However, there's a lingering question. This one individual caught me walking in. You had a, a good cliffhanger for last Sunday. The Lord told me you're going to have a great message today. Another one of our witty brothers said, are you going to tell us how we are now a nonprofit organization? I'm, I'm, those were other people, not me. Um, yeah. <laughs> However, there's that question, right? What, what are we to think about these more miraculous gifts we find in the New Testament? What are we to make of signs and wonders described in the Bible? What are we to think about here in our passage, verse 6, let us use them. And the first one is prophecy. Let us use it. Well, an effort to help us think sensibly, and the way I'm using that is out of Paul's term here, sober judgment, verse 3. I'm not so much taking this as a polemical sermon to you don't think sensibly if you're not thinking the way I do. But I do want us to think sensibly and through renewing our minds for the Scriptures. What do the scriptures say? And let's, let's go there and no further. Okay, that's, that's my heart, and I hope to bring that out as I seek to answer the, the following three questions. Number one, what are the miraculous gifts? What are these? Number two, what's the purpose for the miraculous gifts? And number three, should I seek out the miraculous gifts, or should we seek out the miraculous gifts? Let's, let's consider the first question. What are... The miraculous gifts. The slide's already moved a little bit ahead, but that's okay. Simply put, the gifts that are most commonly identified as miraculous gifts include prophecy, speaking in tongues, and healing. And I want to take these one by one. Prophecy, you see it up there on your screen. This is how I, I would define prophecy from the Scripture. It is the gift of receiving spontaneous revelation from God for a particular occasion in the life of the church, okay? Spontaneous, it comes upon you, and you have a word from the Lord for a particular occasion in the life of the church. We see this gift, I've already mentioned here in verse 6, where Paul calls us to use the gift of prophecy in the proportion of your faith. And you can see why he would say that. You've got to trust, I've got a word from the Lord, right? But we see this gift performed on several occasions in the book of Acts, which I think will be illustrative for us. But we only have time for really one, so I'm going to 
Show us in Acts 13 one example of this. Acts 13, verses 1 through 3. And I've, we're going to be all over the New Testament today, so I've tried to put a lot of the Scripture up on the screen so you can keep up. Listen to what Luke records for us. Now there were in the church at Antioch, by the way, that's where we get our Antioch offering. This is their model of sending out missionaries from themselves. Now there were in the church at Antioch, notice, prophets and teachers. See that? Moving down the verse. While they were worshiping, while they were worshiping, the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And so you can imagine, they're worshiping just like we are. There's prophets in their midst, notice that. And as they're worshiping, as they're fasting, Holy Spirit speaks to one of these prophets and says, set apart specifically Paul and Barnabas, I'm sending them out. Do you see how that works? There's an example of it. And so prophecy is not limited to telling the future. It can be that, but it's a word from the Lord, okay? But such prophecy is not only spontaneous revelation, but I would argue that like prophecy in the Old Testament, it's authoritative and without error. It's authoritative. So this is different than, you know, I feel like the Spirit's leading me to encourage you in this way. But you don't know. And you could be wrong. The prophets weren't wrong. I think it's likened to the Old Testament prophets and how they were tested. And we see this in Deuteronomy 18 where, where Moses begins to set out sort of a litmus test for, for the question, well, how do we know if it's a, a true prophet or a false prophet? How do we know that you, the Lord has spoken through a prophet? Well, Moses says this, if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord? How are you going to know? Well, Moses says, well, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. Prophet has spoken presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So you can see here, and I don't think there's any indication when you see prophets, they're true prophets of the Lord, and even Balaam, a false prophet who was receiving revelation from the Lord, couldn't speak anything other than the, what the Lord had told him. Balak wanted him to prophesy a curse upon Israel. He says, well, I can't really do what the Lord doesn't tell me. And every time he did it, he pronounced a blessing because prophets are authoritative. They speak the word of the God without error. And so thinking about prophecy in the New Testament, we, we see those who are gifted with the gift of prophecy, and they're called prophets. See this in Ephesians 2.20, where Paul tells us that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Prophets here, I don't take as Old Testament prophets, but New Testament prophets, because later in chapter 4, verse 11, Christ gifted the church with apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. He's, he's listing what's happened in the church. So we have these New Testament prophets of, of whom the church is built upon. And what I also want us to see in that passage is that 
The foundation is the apostles and prophets in Christ, kind of a, a threefold foundation. Christ is the chief cornerstone. But what I want you to see is that prophets are on par with apostles. That means they came with the same authoritative weight as they spoke the word of God to God's people. That's prophecy. Let's, let's think about speaking in tongues. What do we mean by that? Maybe you're new here and you're like, what in the world are they talking about today? <laughs> well, this is what tongues are. The gift of speaking in another human language not known by the one speaking. It'd be like me, just... We've, we've actually had um, uh, a Russian family visiting our church off and on over the last several years. It would be me preaching and all of a sudden I, I start speaking Russian. I, d I don't know a lick of Russian. I can't even tell you one phrase. I can't say yes or no or anything, but I'm automatically starting to speak in Russian. Or you, they hear them, the word in Russian and you still hear it in English. It's pretty remarkable. That's what we see in Acts 2 happening. When all were filled with the Holy Spirit, I think this is on your screen, Acts chapter 2, verses 4 and 6. All were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and, there were, and they were bewildered. Why were they bewildered? Because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. That's what tongues is, Okay. Paul begins to give instructions about tongues in, in 1 Corinthians 14. It's important to note here in verse four, or chapter 14, verses 4 and 5, that Paul says that in the worship service, if, if one is to speak in tongues, there also needs to be an interpreter. We might call it a translator. Why? Because it's of no benefit. If that person's, if I start speaking in Russian and we have no Russians here or some other language, well, it's going to be of no benefit to you unless there's someone to interpret. So Paul says this to the Corinthians, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. I mean, there's a sense of which, wow, that would be an incredible experience. But you're the only one experiencing it. And he contrasts it a little bit with prophecies. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Now he's not talking about your value. He's talking about the gift has a, a more building up purpose. Unless someone interprets that the church may be built up. And what we see here is that tongues, again, are decipherable. This isn't gibberish. This isn't some unknown tongue. It, it's not some ecstatic experience. It's a known language, just not known to the speaker. But then there's someone who can interpret it. If you've got an interpreter, then share it with the church. It's also interesting to note that when tongues have, are accompanied by the gift of interpretation, tongues then function like prophecy it's a word of the lord coming down coming in this remarkable way and then someone's able to translate it then there's the gift of healing this is predominantly seen in the ministry of jesus the apostles and their associates whereby the lame will walk 
The deaf will hear, the blind will see, the dead are raised, and demons are cast out. Okay? And it appears in the New Testament that those who are able to, are gifted with the gift of healing, are able to practice it with some frequency. And so I want to distinguish this from when we go and we pray for one another, and we do, we ask God to heal. Or maybe we, we know of someone who's trapped in sin. Maybe there is demonic activity going on. And we pray and we ask God to deliver someone, to save them, to heal them. That's different than the gift of healing. The gift of healing comes immediately. And often through the hands and or prayers of the one gifted with that ability. I want to see another example of this. This is in Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. That's going to be an important note. And they were all gathered together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came, by at least his shadow might fall on some of them. People also, also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they all were healed. This is very important, I think, for understanding the role of gifts today, which we're about to transition in. If it's genuinely going on, it's going to genuinely look like this. There's no, there's no doubt about it. So having gained a basic understanding of what the miraculous gifts are, we need to ask this question. Well, what was their purpose? Why were these things going on? What, what purpose and role did they have? And so as I embark to answer this second question, I want, I want to come in with a, a little bit of a... Um, um, I guess nuance and, and recognize that I realize other godly men and women view these things differently. In fact, I'm sure there are some even in our midst here who, who you've maybe studied these things um, extensively for yourself and you've, you've reached a, a different conclusion. And, and I want you to know that um, I don't see this as a line in the sand that, that celebra uh, separates believers. It does impact how we function. But my intent, however, is to present a case from the Scripture, how, how I've come to these conclusions, and, and I would say uh, most of your leaders are here as well. But my intention is to say, all right, how, how do we get here? How do we wrestle with um, what's going on? And, um, and let's see what the scripture says and let's go no further. Now, you may say you've, you've gone too far. But one sense I would say is, where do you see the gifts functioning as we just described anywhere? I'm fine with, I'm open to God doing these things. I'm not saying he can't. I'm just saying it's not normative for the life of the church. That's, what, that's where I'm going to get at, Okay. I'm not saying God doesn't heal. I'm just saying 
even those who say they do these things, I don't see this. And I would say the predominant view throughout church history, you church history guys can rebuke me if you think otherwise, the predominant view is that the church has, has taken the view that I'm trying to espouse to you today. That these gifts had a particular purpose in the early church in the foundational years of the church, in the first hundred years. I don't have a time to expand this exhaustively. I'm just going to try to bring a basic case. There's more text to be explored. I'm sure there's text that you may want to talk to me about and say, what about this? What about that? I can't cover it all. I'm just presenting a positive case for what is often called cessationism, if you're curious about those terms. There's those who classify themselves as continuationists. They think the gifts are operating just as they were. Okay? And then there's those would say no they've ceased or they they're they're different and i would i would at least say it's different and even continuationists have to realize that nobody's shadow is being cast over anybody at any church and all the town is being healed it's just not happening even on the mission field it's not happening on regular frequency so something is different and so to the extent of it um, I'll let you be the judge, be good Bereans this morning, search these things in the scripture and see if they be true. I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet. I'm a pastor in that list of gifts, okay? But I do hope that I'm bringing you the word of God from scripture to the best of my ability. So with that being said, I'm convinced that the miraculous gifts served a foundational role to the birth of the church during the ministry of the apostles and prophets. That's what I'm getting at, okay? Specifically, I think the gifts, the signs and wonders, all that we've just discussed, were to confirm the message preached by the apostles until the church was well established with a completed canon of Scripture, what we would call the Bible, New Testament, okay? And so I want to present three passages that I think move us in that direction, seem to suggest this, okay? And the first is found in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, we got up on the screen. I'm going to pause and comment a few times to this, but, so bear with me. The writer of Hebrews is actually giving a warning, and this is a warning to all of us, not to neglect the gospel that we hear preached. But he's giving it in the context of it's a greater revelation than that which was given in the Old Testament. The temptation for these believers, well, let's just go back to our Jewish way of living. Let's go back to the temple. Let's go back to the Old Testament sacrifices and and, and do things as we once did. And he says, you cannot go back. And so he says, beginning there in verse 1, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. He's talking about the gospel. We must pay closer attention to what we have heard. Why? Lest we drift away from it. Now here's the contrast. For since the message declared by angels, that's the law, okay? He's talking about the the message declared by angels. Tradition in Jewish uh, was that the angels were the mediators between God and Moses on Mount Sinai and brought the law to him. That's what he's talking about. So think the law here. For since the message, i.e. the law, declared by angels, proved to be reliable, because it was authoritative, it proved reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, meaning those who disobeyed this revelation, just go read numbers, okay? They die. 
It proved reliable. He goes on. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Saying oh, an even greater revelation has come. And a greater Moses, Jesus. And if you, after hearing this message, reject it, do you think you will escape? That's what he's getting after. He goes on, he says, It, the gospel, was declared at first by the Lord. That's Jesus. And it was attested to us by those who heard. That's the apostles. Now notice, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So yeah, there it is. What's, what's your point, Chase? My point is he's, he's showing, just as with Moses, the words proved reliable, and it was accompanied with signs and wonders. So this message, which is even greater, has been accompanied with signs and wonders. Okay, that's the connection I want you to see. Paul even seems to um, make this connection when he speaks to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. There's false teachers, false apostles coming around, and what does he say? The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. There seems to be an association with his ministry What shows that I'm an apostle? Signs and wonders. You see that? They confirm the message that he's coming to preach and basically says those guys are phonies. And I want us to come back to Ephesians 2, 19 through 20 where I think this is a little more clear. Paul explains in Ephesians 2 that the church was established and built upon the foundation laid by the apostles, prophets, and Christ the foundation. Christ is the chief cornerstone. Let's listen to that again. Verse 19, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. If you were to come over to my house right now and you look out my, my windows, looking out my backyard, there's a house being built. And it's actually been quite intriguing uh, to watch um, the house just assemble seemingly in days, just come up so quickly. Most of the time was spent, however, laying the foundation. Foundation was laid. And I was talking to my kids last night. I said, you know what the foundation is? They said, yeah, the concrete that was smooth. And I said, yeah, how many times did they do that? They said, once. I said, that's right. You don't build multiple foundations when you're building a house. You have a foundation that's solid. You make sure that foundation isn't going to crumble, and then the building rests upon it. Well, in the same way, the church's foundation has been laid, Paul says, by the apostles and prophets, and Christ Jesus being the headstone, the piece that makes sure all the other bricks are in line. He's the, he's the measurement, the standard. And now that this foundation has been laid, the church, I think church universal, is built upon it. It's where we're going to right now. And how do we know this is the authoritative word of God? Because it was attested to us by signs and wonders, and we're reading about it. Just like generations had to read about Moses and look back and say, 
Let me tell you, those stones that are stacked up, that look unimpressive, they got moss growing on them, and the weather has just worn them down, and you wonder, why do we have a stack of rocks right there? Well, let me tell you what the Lord did in ages past. He rose up his prophet Moses, and he came with ten plagues and showed his name and the power of his hand against Pharaoh and their gods. And we, we put blood over the, over the uh, doorposts, and the angel of death passed over us, but he killed all the firstborn children who did not have the blood of the lamb over their door. And after this, get, the, get this, the Egyptians began to give us all their goods, saying, get out of there. Then they changed their mind, and we're, we're trapped between Pharaoh's army, which is surely going to destroy us, and the Red Sea. But Moses reached out his hand and stretched out his staff, and the waters parted. And we were guided by a, a pillar of fire by night and a, and a cloud by day. And we saw manna come from heaven. That's how the Lord delivered us. How much greater of a revelation we have received. Let me tell you about Jesus, who came a man attested by many signs and wonders who didn't just deliver us from men, he delivered us from slavery to sin. And when he was on earth, he, the, the deaf heard, the blind see, the lame walked, the dead were raised, the demons were cast out. He had a group of guys he commissioned as apostles, and they did likewise, and their associates. This Jesus died. This Jesus died, and he rose again on the third day. The sun was darkened, the earth shook, the dead raised. How do we know these things? Because his apostles, whom he handed down that message, have attested it to us with signs and wonders. And we're passing it down to you today. That's how I see the signs and wonders working. They were confirming the message of the apostles. Well, and that's important. Think about who, who was an apostle. To be an apostle, you had to be commissioned as an apostle and have seen the risen Jesus. So Jesus himself had to commission you. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, Paul sees himself as the last person whom Christ appeared. Meaning, there are no more apostles. And so here, my friends, you have one gift that's no longer continuing. The gift of apostleship. So something's changed. Everyone has to recognize that. So what about prophecy? Well, those who had the gift of prophecy were prophets. And they too, Ephesians 2.20, were foundational with the apostles. Now remember, in the early church, they didn't have immediately the scriptures as we do. In fact, the church in Rome doesn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. As Paul's writing, we, we tend to forget it. They're not in chronological order in our Bible. There's other reasons that for the order that they're in. And so they needed prophets to come in. They may have Paul's letter to Rome, but they need more guidance, more, more immediate revelation, and so they have prophets who come and speak the word of God to them. And so the prophets appear in church history to have lasted a little longer than the apostles. 
until the church had a complete revelation and they were, had what they need to flourish. So what I want us to see is that if apostles and prophets were foundational to the church, you, you don't keep building foundations. And no longer needed after the church was established in the world, so also signs and wonders, which were accompanied by their ministry, served a similar purpose. And if you look at the scriptures at a, as a, at a wholesale, look at it big picture, redemptive history. If you're like, I'm lost, September, first Sunday of September, we got a new class for you. It's called Christ from Beginning to End. It's the Christian story is what we're going to, it's a class, it's 12 weeks, I'm putting the whole Bible together, okay? But if you look at the whole Bible and you understand the gaps in time, there aren't many signs and wonders. They're in intensive periods. You got creation. That one's big. No one was there to see that one. We just got it written down. Essentially, you got Moses. And it starts fading off. And then you'll find there's Elijah and Elisha, but they actually have obscure ministries. And then you find in the, in the minor prophets, we haven't had a prophet in years until John the Baptist shows up. And then, boom, intensive signs and wonders. And if you're familiar with how Jesus' ministry is, is, is articulated, what happened? I've called my son out of Egypt. Sounds very much like the Exodus. And then the, move, the story moves to Jesus being baptized. And immediately after he comes out of the waters, think Red Sea, he's driven into the wilderness where he's tempted. But unlike Israel, he succeeds. And then he comes up Mount Sermon on the Mount, like Moses and delivers God's law. It's a greater revelation. Intensive signs and wonders, and now we have it. And they've served their purpose. So my last question, should we seek out the miraculous gifts? If we understand that the signs and wonders testified to in the Scripture came at significant points of redemption redemptive history, then we shouldn't be surprised that they are not normative for everyday life. We're not missing something, I would argue. By normative, I'm leaving room for signs and wonders to occur, but I believe that when they genuinely occur, they occur among people groups not yet reached. It's usually when you hear these stories. And if you look at the pattern of Acts when those who speak in tongues, it doesn't happen every time. But if you understand when it happens, it's happening when significant groundwork is being laid in new territory. Territory has been well established here. So while stating the miraculous are not normative, this is not to say that we should be naturalists who are not seeking the leading of the Spirit or failing to recognize the unseen realm around us. Our tendency here in the West is to trust our electronics and science. And I'm not saying dismiss science. I'm just saying we, we, we trust that. That's the authoritative word. That's the true teller of reality. What's going on in our lives, well, yeah, the Bible doesn't get there. Yes, it does. It actually has biblical terms for it. It says it's sin. 
We're under a curse. That doesn't mean everything what we do is... We just recognize we're limited, and the Bible does have solutions, even if that solution's resurrection and perseverance and trust. But we will run to other things first before we'll run to the Lord. I don't have time. All right. Therefore, therefore, what should we be seeking? Well, the Scriptures tell us to be Seek to be full of the Spirit. What's that? It's whereby the Word of Christ dwells in us richly. We're to be intentional about walking, not according to the flesh, but walking according to the Spirit. The Holy Spirit then works God's Word in our life so that our affections grow and and fester and, and, and build and fan into flame. Affections for God and for others. Paul says to the Galatian church, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. What's a a Spirit-led life look like? Well, it's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, kindness, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Considering this question, I want to bring another witness from another century two centuries ago, Pastor Spurgeon. Quote's a little lengthy, but I want you to just, I think this is good word for us. Just follow along on the screen. Now be it never forgotten that those works of the Holy Spirit which are permanent must assuredly be of greater value than those which were transitory. So what's he saying? The gifts that you have now greater than those signs and wonders that we so long to see. We cannot suppose that the Holy Ghost brought forth the best wine at first and that his operations gradually deteriorated. It is a rule of the kingdom to keep the best wine to the last. And therefore I conclude that you and I are not left to partake of the dregs. That those works of the Holy Spirit which are at his time vouchsafed for the church of God are every way as valuable as those earlier miraculous gifts which have departed from us. Work of the Holy Spirit by which men are quickened from their death and sin is not inferior to the power which made men speak with tongues. The work of the Holy Spirit when he comforts men and makes them glad in Christ is by no means second to the opening of the eyes of the blind. Why, sirs? Men might have the gifts of the Spirit so so as to miracle and yet might perish after all. But he that hath the spiritual gifts of the Holy Ghost shall never perish. They are saving blessings. And where they come, they lift the man out of his sinful estate and make him to be a child of God. I would therefore press it upon you this morning that as you would certainly inquire whether you had the gifts of healing and miracle working, if such gifts were now given to believers, much more should you inquire whether you have those more permanent gifts of the Spirit which are this day open to you all by which you shall work no physical miracle, but shall achieve spiritual wonders of grander sort. Wrapping up these two sermons on the gifts, I want us to trust Oak Park. Trust that God has equipped us by His Spirit to do the work of ministry. He hasn't left us with a squirt gun to, to 
to, to charge the gates of hell. He's given us living waters that come through his spirit, by which we call the dead to life through the gospel. Right now, we're about to transition to take the Lord's Supper. Pastor Gary, if you would, come on up here. We're going to tra transition to the Lord's Supper where, yeah, we have symbolic elements here. But they are symbols of spiritual realities. And this is where I want to press this. Do we believe that Christ is here among us at the table? That the Spirit is among us, and as we partake of the one bread and the one drink, that we are united in one spirit with the church universal. Because this is what these elements symbolize. And so, Pastor Gary, I'm going to let you have the pulpit.